my favourite memories of the time uh, when Sue and I were living in, in North Devon at Lee Abbey uh, was, was Easter time, when we took the guests through the Easter story. Um, and, and we used the whole of the estate. I don't know if you, you may not have seen pictures, but it's a big house on the top of a hill that falls away down to its own private beach. And there's woodland and there's farmland and there's old bits and new bits and there's a stream. And we, and we walked through this um, place, taking people on a journey. Uh, and it was a great opportunity to, to take people in community and give them roles to play. We had a... We had a uh, a, a kind of drama that I sketched out. I, mean, I gave little roles to each person on community. And, and there was lots of fun to be had. So um, the kind of rugged, man-bunned, tough guy who worked on the, on the beacon, we, we dressed him in, in kind of um, John the Baptist-type clothes and put him in the stream and we got him to baptise somebody. I think he might even have baptised Donage in one year. I can't remember. Um, we got a tall, long-haired, wispy beard, Swedish-looking guy to play Jesus. He looked great in a, in a long, white, flowing robe. Um, we got Sarah, um, the vicar, who had quite wild hair and, and kind of crazy eyes. She got really passionate. We got her to play the demon-possessed woman. We, you know, we, kind of, we got the chaplains, the religious people, to play the Pharisees. We, we, we brought it to life with real people. And... And the other thing I did when I put the script together was I, I pulled stories from all of the Gospels in order to tell the story. I had an hour and a half to walk through and, and tell the story. And so um, we, we took, um, I think, Mark's account of John the Baptist baptising. We took Luke's um, um, statement of Jesus in the, temp, in the synagogue explaining his manifesto. Um, we took Matthew's um, um, Sermon on the Mount and used feeding of the 5,000 and I used John's um, I am statements to, to punctuate the drama to create points of interest and I, when I stood back at the end of it I realised I'd done exactly what the gospel writers had done they'd looked at the life of Jesus and they'd taken key stories and, and strung them together to tell the story that they wanted to tell to the audience that they had in front of them in a way that would get a message across. Not just the life of Jesus, but the message behind the life of Jesus. And we've heard, haven't we, um, as in the last few weeks, and I encourage you to go back and listen to some of the talks, how at the start of John's Gospel, John is setting the scene and saying, um, I'm going to tell you the story about Jesus, but Jesus is the key person in the centre of this. He's, he is... He is the thing that the whole of creation pivots around. That's my thesis. Jesus is um, the Christ, but he's not just here and now in, in AD 30 or 40 or 50. Jesus was at the beginning of time. He's now, and he goes to the end of time. He's building this really big picture. And then at the end of the chapter, this first chapter, he brings up the story of the call of the first disciples. So we've got these blocks of story, the cosmic Christ starting at the top. We go through who John the Baptist isn't. John the Baptist talks about who Jesus is, and then there's the call of the disciples. That's the story, but behind it all are the key things that John's trying to explain. That 
It's a new creation. It's a new revelation. It replaces the old. It's focused on Jesus. And you, the reader, are being called to be part of this. And the call is to come and see Jesus and to come and follow Jesus. And throughout the whole of the narrative, we've got this string of names, one after another, of who Jesus is. And they start from quite simple statements um, through um, the statements about him being God, the Messiah, the Christ, right down to this really strange one, the Son of Man, which is set in the context of being the gateway between heaven and earth. It's really quite an amazing vision. And John is inviting us, as we read, to follow, to come and see and to follow. Let's look at a story, shall we? Do you want to turn to one, uh, John chapter 1? If you've got a Bible, open it up. I want you to sit and look at the text. If you don't have a Bible, but you have a phone, you've got a Bible. If you don't have the version app on your phone yet, get it. You have a free Bible in different versions. Put it on your phone. I think, I'm hoping, yeah, the words are going to be on the screen, aren't they? Let's read the story together. The next day, starting at verse 35 in, in John 1. The next day, John was there again with two of his disciples. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, look, the Lamb of God. When the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. Turning around, Jesus saw them following and asked, What do you want? They said, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Come, he replied, and you will see. So they went and saw where he was staying, and they spent that day with him. It was about four in the afternoon. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who had heard what John had said and who had followed Jesus. The first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him, we have found the Messiah, that is the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, son of John. You will be called Cephas, which when translated is Peter. The next day Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. Finding Philip, he said to him, follow me. Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethsaida. Philip found Nathanael and told him, we have found the one Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nazareth, can anything good come from there? Nathanael asked. Come and see, said Philip. When Jesus saw Nathanael approaching, he said of him, Here truly is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. How do you know me? Nathanael asked. Jesus answered, I saw you while you were still under the fig tree, before Philip called you. Then Nathanael declared, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. 
Jesus said, you believe because I told you I saw you under the fig tree. You will see greater things than that. He then added, very truly I tell you, you, and that's you plural, you all will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. It's a gripping story, it's a strange story and it ends with really quite a strange conversation between Jesus and Nathaniel. I hope we'll get a little bit more into that. But I want to start by just saying John, the writer of the Gospel, went on an amazing personal journey. He started out as a fisherman, we know that because of the, the call of the disciples in Matthew, Mark and Luke talk about John and his brother James being fishermen. In fact, they worked alongside Simon and Andrew. He was described as one of the sons of thunder. So he's he's clearly a a fiery or exciting, animated character. He's ambitious. There are stories of of his mother um, asking for James and John to be given special places in the kingdom of God. He becomes one of Jesus' closest disciples. He's a witness to a lot of the things that other people don't see. And at the end of the story, we hear that he leans on Jesus' breast. He's, he's become really close. He's become captivated by Jesus. And the central theme of what he writes about in the letters that he writes are about abiding in love. Here is a man who's gone from being really active to being utterly captivated by Jesus. And I think he, he's trying to tell that story again as he tells the story in in the book of John. He wants us um, to go from our um, activeness to become captivated, to draw us away from the busyness of what we're doing, to be focused on Jesus, become captivated by Jesus. And so he starts with some questions. This whole story has the questions in it. What do you want? What do you want from your life? The answer back is, where, well, where are you, Jesus? Where, where, where are you? Where can I come? And Jesus' invitation is, come and see me. And the rest of the book takes us through a whole load of signs that John presents to us to explain who Jesus is. And at the end, there's a really long discourse, which we will get to later in the year, um, at the Last Supper. And the main part of that is all about how we need to abide in Jesus and allow Jesus to abide in us how we're going to find places where we can abide in heaven we're encouraged to be part of the vine abide in the vine so there's this amazing draw from activeness into being captivated and being in Jesus' presence it's a call to be with Jesus to abide with him and to follow Jesus, which is about learning how to be more like him and how to do the things that he did. So being captivated by Jesus, and from that being captivated, becoming reactivated to do the things that Jesus would like us to do. And right in the middle of John, we get this amazing statement that Jesus has come to bring us life and life in all of its fullness. And the last verse in the whole book of John is that he's told us all of these things 
so that we might believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. So all of this is, this is who Jesus is. I want you to learn more about him. I want you to fall in love with him because that is where you will find life. That is where you will come alive. Excited yet? I am. So, I'm going to talk about the journey. First of all, where are we going? John's taking us on a journey. Where's he taking us? Let's, let's have a bit of cultural context. John is talking about Jesus. Jesus lived in AD um, 0 to AD 30, approximately. At that time, um, the Jewish nation, Jewish people, lived by the book. They had a book, the Torah, the Old Testament, we call it, and it's what formed and shaped the whole of their thinking, their culture, their society, their religious life. The whole of it was centred around that book. It recorded their people's history and their encounter with God and how they flourished under that encounter with God. And the, four, the, the core part of it was the first five books. They called it the Torah. This is um, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. They called that the way. They thought that contained the truth. They, they thought by following what it said in it, they would have life. And because it was so important, because it was so important, key part of their education, key their, part of their education, of their, their children, of their children, the fact they didn't really educate their girls, Jesus welcomed girls in, women in to his discipleship. But the core part of the culture then was to train boys. And so boys from the age of six to ten, a key part of their education was to learn the first five books of the Bible from memory. So by the age of 10, all Jewish boys should be able to know from memory the first five books of the Bible. At that point, the best of those students were encouraged to move on from what was called Bet Sefer, it was the house of the book. They were encouraged to go to the next level of learning, Bet Talmud, called the house of learning. So this runs from approximately age 10 to age 14. And in that point, they learned the whole of the Old Testament from book 1 to book 39, from memory. It's crammed into their heads. It becomes part of their everyday talk. As well as that, they learned, they're taught how to ask questions. The whole of the, the way that Jewish culture interacts with scripture is to ask questions. They discussed and they debated it in community. They wrestled with it together. This is why Jesus often answers a question with another question. What do you think? How do you read it? In the, in the um, Gospel accounts, Jesus is asked 183 questions. He answers three of them. He asks 307 questions back. Okay? Questioning is part of wrestling with what it means to be a follower of Jesus. People were effectively taught how to learn rather than what to learn. They were taught how to think, how to, how to grapple. At the end of this period, 10 to 14, the best of those 
students were encouraged to go on um, to the next part of it, which was learning the oral tradition. Not just what the verses said, but what everybody else has said about the verses. So there's scripture and then the commentary on scripture. And various people, various rabbis, have different conclusions from that various um, oral tradition. That was known as a rabbi's yoke. The, uh, yeah, I've, some people said this, I think this, this is what I think, this is my yoke. That's why you often hear Jesus saying, you have heard it said, but I say, and it's why Jesus says, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. It's the culture and the context of Jesus being a rabbi, being a teacher. So at the end of this, probably between 15 and 18, the best students who've really flourished in that environment are then go on to the third level of, um, of training. It's called Bet Midrash, the house of study. They become a Talmudin. They, they seek to become a disciple. And to do that, you would look around and you would choose a rabbi that you resonated with. Someone whose yoke you understood and agreed with and, and fit, felt you fitted in. And you would go to that rabbi and say, I would like to follow you. Can I take on your yoke? And the rabbi would look at that, that person and ask them lots of questions to make sure they understood their yoke, their understanding, their oral tradition, they knew the scriptures. And they'd look at them and say, do you have the potential to be my, my disciple? Could you become like me and can you do the things that I could do? And if the rabbi decided that you could, he would say, come, follow me. So to be a disciple in Jesus' day, you had to be the best of the best of the best of the best. And you then were invited into being able to follow. In John's story, um, in verses um, 35, 36, 37, Andrew is presented and, and described as being a, fo a follower of John the Baptist. He's in discipleship. Andrew is the best of the best of the best of the best. Simon is a fisherman. He's not the best of the best of the best of the best. He's effectively fallen away at some point. He's a failure. He's a reject. He's a nobody. And what does Jesus say to him? Come and follow me. And later on Jesus reminds his disciples, you did not choose me. I chose you. Jesus is saying, or John is saying that Jesus is saying, discipleship is a journey that anybody can be involved in. This is for all of us. How do we go on this journey? Well, the answer is to come and see. The answer is to come and follow. Um, we, we become disciples by spending time with Jesus. We, we, we be with Jesus. And the process of discipleship is to become more like the person that we are following and to start doing the things that the person we are following does. It's a call to, 
be captivated by Jesus, to be with him, and then to be activated by Jesus to do the things that he does. This is a journey we do in community. Because the story we've heard has James and um, uh, Simon and Andrew are brothers. James and John, two of the other disciples who are often called in the, in the calling stories, are brothers as well. Um, some of them are related to each other. We think that one of um, Jesus' brothers was a disciple. They certainly were in the outer core of followers. Um, um, parents are involved. Mary and Cleopas, we think, are married. Um, um, Levi and uh, Thaddeus, who are in some of the other stories, they are they're described as sons of Alpheus. They have the same father. So there's lots of family relationships going on here. There are friendship relationships. Philip and uh, Nathaniel are described as both being coming from the same place as um, Simon and Andrew. Um, there are work colleague relationships. James and John work with Simon and Andrew. There's this whole network of connections. And some people encounter Jesus and then they go and tell their friends or their family, I have found the Messiah, come and see. We, the whole of the wrestling with scripture is done in community, in connection, um, together. We do life together, we wrestle together, we serve together. That's the place that we do discipleship. You're in church today, you're part of this community. If you're not in a small group, get into one. That's a place where you can get to know Jesus better and learn how to be more like Jesus. If you've got two or three friends, start praying with them. That's a place where you can be accountable. If you haven't got a mentor yet, especially if you're a young person, get one. There's somebody who can encourage you on your walk of discipleship. I'm going to skip that. Who can go on the journey? Well, the answer is anyone and everyone. And John gives us four very separate examples. In verse 40, he describes Andrew's call. We know that Andrew is already a disciple of John the Baptist, so he must be a seeker, he must be a scholar. He's already been identified as being the best of the best of the best of the best. But he's clearly not satisfied because when John points at Jesus and says he's the Messiah, he's really keen to go and find out more, isn't he? He, he, he jumps ship at the first opportunity. Jesus' first words um, in John's gospel are, what do you want? There's this lovely resonance with God's first words in, the, in Genesis. Where are you? And it's Andrew who reflects that back to John and says, where are you staying? Where are you abiding? I want to come and be with you again. We moved away from God in the Garden of Eden. Here's the start of us moving back to God, to finding where God is and presented. Jesus calls him and says, come and see. Here's someone who's been working on thinking and studying and grafting, called into relationship. second person that Jesus calls is Peter in verses 41 to 42. We know he's a fisherman. We know he's disqualified from being a disciple. He's not smart enough. He hasn't worked hard enough. He's a reject. He's a nobody. 
you read Luke's account of, um, Simon, of Simon's call, and it happens on a boat, and, and Simon's really aware of his failings. Get away from me, um, Lord. I am a sinful man. I love that Jesus' response in this story is, is not to give him a new role, it's not to call him to, to be fisher of men, which is how it's described in other accounts, it's to give him a new identity. Simon, you will be called Peter. He gives him a new identity. Um, Cephas is the Aramaic word for rock. Peter is the, is the um, um, Latin or Greek translation Petros. It's rock, it means the same thing. Simon, is, Simon Peter is given the identity of being the rock upon which Jesus is going to build his new community. So Simon is called to a new identity. Philip, we hear about his call in verses 43 and 44, which seems quite quick and uneventful. Jesus finds him and he says, come and follow me. And he looks like he follows him. However, there's, there's two more bits of information that we know. First of all, Philip is a Greek name. He's not, no, there's no point is Philip ever given an Aramaic or a Hebrew name. He has a Greek name, which implies that he's of Greek extraction, a Greek heritage. Um, he's an alien. He's an outsider. He's someone who doesn't fit in. And secondly, the th second thing we know is that Philip's call is preceded by the fact that Jesus has decided to go to Galilee. He's going on an adventure. And that's the reason it seems he goes and seeks Philip out. It suggests to me that Philip, the person who doesn't feel settled, feels different, feels restless, is called to a new adventure a new purpose. An encouragement to those of us who feel like we don't fit in. Not part of the crowd. We maybe feel misunderstood. Jesus sees us. Jesus calls us by name. He's got plans for us. The final story is Nathaniel. N-A-T-H-A-N-A-E-L. 45 to 49. Nathaniel's call is a little bit more confusing. More confusing. At first sight, it, it seems like it's probably it seems that first six. Can anything good come from Nazareth? Why does a cynic suddenly change his mind about and follow Jesus and declare that uh, Jesus is the Son of God and the King of Israel after one or two sentences of dialogue? It seems a little bit preposterous for me it, it makes a little bit more sense if we unpack um, some of the Jewish idiom and the, and the context cultural context again remember John is speaking to a culture where everybody knows the Torah and quite a few people know the whole of the Old Testament um, but off by heart, by memory so they can pick up really quickly the scriptural wordplay that's going on. And there's the strong evidence that the, the phrase sitting under the fig tree, which is how um, Nathaniel is described as being, that means 
means deeply studying the scriptures. When you sit under the fig tree, you are deeply immersing yourself in study. And in particular, immersing yourself in the study of who the Messiah is going to be, the, the, the prophecies. Here is a man who is looking forward, dreaming of, 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 of the, the promise of the Messiah. Which is exactly why, when he hears Jesus described as Jesus of Nazareth, he responds so vehemently against it. Because he knows his scripture, and he knows that the Messiah is going to come from Bethlehem. Because the prophecy of, is that it will, that's where, Jesus, that's where the Messiah will come from, in Micah 5. And it's, it's, it's supported too by the fact that Nazareth was a bit of a down-at-heel place in Jesus' time. It was despised. It was looked down upon. It was of little worth, of low esteem. So I find it interesting that the thing that Jesus says to Nathaniel is, here is a true Israelite in whom there is no deceit. Rather strange thing to describe somebody as. Now, it, it, some... some um, um, Academics suggest that's just Jesus tying the whole thing together with um, the story of Jacob. Jacob, um, which is then referred to at the end of the passage because of Jacob's ladder, the place where God um, comes down to earth, up and down the ladder. Um, but, um, and Jacob means deceit, the, de the deceiver. That's the name of G Jacob. But there's another suggestion, and that is that Nathaniel was actually deeply embedded in studying Isaiah 53 which is one of the main messianic prophecies and passages. You will recognise some of these words. He was despised and rejected by mankind. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. Behold the Lamb of God, John Baptist has just said. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. So the description of Jesus to Nathaniel, a true Israelite in whom there is no deceit, could also be read as a description of Jesus. I am the true King of Israel. I am the Messiah. There is no deceit in my um, mouth. I, 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 I like that. that. That excites me. I think what Jesus has done is quote the very piece of scripture that Nathaniel has been studying under the fig tree. He's spoken almost prophetically into the mind of the person who's deep in prophecy. I think this is Nathaniel coming to a sudden revelation, a new vision of who Jesus is, because that's how he's wired. The dreamer, the contemplative, is called to a new vision. So we have people who are called to abide, people who are given new identity, people who are given new purpose, people who are given new vision. And John's saying, that's the call for you too. I want you to come and abide with me. I want you to get a new identity. I want to give you new purpose. I want to give you new vision. When do we start? We start now. Because 
Discipleship is a daily choice to follow Jesus, a daily choice to orientate ourselves towards Jesus. It's not about where you are. It doesn't matter how far away you feel. It's about where you're heading. What stops us? I'm going to suggest there are two reasons. One is that we have an incorrect view of who God is. And I think we have an incorrect view of how God operates. We've already heard, haven't we, that John explains that Jesus shows us who God is. If you want to know who God is, you look at Jesus. And one of the key characteristics that he describes about Jesus earlier on in chapter, um, chapter 1 and verse 14, the word became flesh and made his dwelling, abided with us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. So God is full of grace and truth. This is not grace and truth, two independent um, characteristics, separate. For me, this is grace and truth, two opposites held in tension. Grace being God's unconditional love for each one of us, and truth, God's clear identification of our, of our real nature, our fallen nature, our brokenness, our need for healing and salvation. God's love and God's judgment. Sometimes God's judgment is described as God's wrath. It's almost, it almost has a, a kind of anger about it. He doesn't want us to be in this position. He wants us to know God's love. So, but God is both of these. Jesus has, is full of grace and truth. And if we just concentrate on God being God of love and don't worry about the fact that he wants to change us and mould us and shape us and get us away from the things that hurt us, that, that, that there is no judgement, then we, we, we miss out on something. We, we get skewed. If we concentrate on the fact that we're worms and sinners and God doesn't love us, God hates us, then we never experience God's love. Jesus is grace and truth. And we went away a couple of weeks ago and someone told this story. Um, it was a retreat that we went on. Um, of imagine, um, imagine that you're 17 and you've, you've finally persuaded your parents that you can go out um, for the night You've promised to be home by midnight and you've promised not to drink too much. And the reality of the thing is that you stagger home at two o'clock in the morning. Um, you kind of finally get through the front door after five or six attempts to use your key, scratching the paint. You stumble into the hallway. You're immediately sick on the floor. You kind of tiptoe really quietly 
and you see that the lounge door is open and the light is on and your parents are sitting there waiting for you. How do you feel? Imagine now that Jesus is sitting next to your parents. How do you think he feels? I think a lot of us go to the mental image of Jesus sharing a glance with your parents and joining in the deep sense of um, disappointment and um, yes how could you you broke all the rules I'm ashamed of you I want to turn that around I don't think Jesus does that I think Jesus gets up he comes to you in the hall he cleans you up he takes you upstairs and he settles you down in bed making sure that you're safe he cleans up the mess that you made and he says I love you I'm so glad that you're back safely we were worried about you there's stuff to talk about in the morning but I want you to know that you are loved and you are valued and you are precious and I'm so glad you're here so Jesus shows us God is grace and truth. But grace always comes first. Let me tell you one more thing. I think the way that um, God works um, is often the opposite way around to the way that we think he works. So often, and the church plays this out very, very frequently, is that we ask people to behave. You can't come in here unless you dress properly and you look a bit smart and you've tidied your hair and you've stopped doing that thing that you shouldn't be doing. And our response to that is, who are you to tell me what to do? Or, yeah, I did do it, I feel so ashamed, I can't possibly come and be part of this. And if we pass the behaviour test, then we say, but this is what we believe, and if you don't believe this, then you can't be part of this. So you need to get your ideas sorted out, get your theology sorted out, make sure you understand it all, and then we'll talk. And our reaction is, I'm a bit confused. I can't be like the Queen of Hearts and believe six impossible things before breakfast. It doesn't make sense to me. I'm going to give up. And sometimes we say, well, yeah, you behaved, you believed. Only when you've done those two things can you belong, can you be part. You've passed the threshold. You're now a member. And, and we feel, mm, I'm not sure I want to be part of a group that would have me as a member. I don't fit in. And then we say, you've behaved, you've believed, you belong. Now, this is the point when God's going to bless you. By that time, we, we've got there and we think, I don't, I don't really deserve that. I think God's a demanding tyrant. I think Jesus 
demonstrates again and again and again that it's completely the other way around. Jesus comes to bless you first. Jesus heals people with no prejudice. He just does it. He blesses people. Jesus um, does many of his healings in order to demonstrate that people are not unclean, that they can then belong, that they do belong. Jesus invites his disciples into relationship without them needing to pass the test. No preconditions. And it's only once they've belonged that they start to get to know who Jesus is and they learn how to do the things that he's doing and become more like him. That's the point when they start to believe. They start to understand it. They start to get it. And it's in that safe environment of being loved and accepted and wanted and welcomed that people then start, the disciples then start to behave. They start to sort their lives out. And I would argue it's only once the Holy Spirit is sent, after Jesus has died and been raised again, that the disciples really get their act together and get truly activated and start doing the things that Jesus wants them to do and behave the way he wants them to do. It's bless, belong, believe, behave. Jesus is calling you by name to come and see who he is so that he might show you how to follow him become like him and do the things he wants you to do. And you are all welcome. You are all on that journey because it's not about where you are now. It's about who you're heading towards. I'm going to stop there and invite the band up. Can I just pray for you? Lord, we all need to learn more about who you are. We all need to spend time getting to know you better. So wherever we are on that journey, on that point, in that position, we pray that you will reveal yourself, that we might come and see you more clearly. And Lord, as we spend time abiding with you, we pray that you will fill us with your spirit. You may activate us. Help us to become more like Jesus every day. That we might do the things that you did, Jesus. And that as you promised, we would come to see greater things than these. In our time, in our lives, in our town, in our families, in our friendship groups. Bless us, Lord. Remind us that we belong. Help us to believe. Show us how we should behave. Amen.